Hello and welcome to Driving Discussions. In this series, we'll discuss the forces that affect road fuels globally. In today's episode, we'll be discussing BP's recent release of their annual energy outlook by reviewing three main scenarios which explore different pathways for the global energy system through the year 2050 and how the pandemic has affected oil demand in the long term. My name is Stephen Jones, and I'm the global leader for the oil products here at Argus Media. And with me today is Michael Cohen. He's the chief U.S. economist and head of the oil analysis at BP. So welcome, Michael. Thanks, Stephen. It's great to be here, and thank you very much for for hosting me on your podcast today. Delighted to have you. Uh, I guess we'll jump right in the deep end here. Um, You know, the BP annual energy outlook is kind of an event unto itself every year. Uh, The market kind of looks to BP for its leadership in looking at the economic possibilities in our industry. And as such, uh, this outlook is described as a set of scenarios. So even though one scenario could be called business as usual case, the resulting outlook doesn't seem too, too that unusual in that respect. Are there any of the scenarios that you'd consider more likely than others are we kind of embarking on a brave new normal or business as usual, as it might be called? So, you know, we use this outlook to try to identify features that are common across all three scenarios. And and in that, um, you know, pursuit are, are not really assigning any likelihood um, over any one of the others. And I think in that process of defining these scenarios, um, and looking at the results of them, we, we've highlighted that there are three main trends that sort of come, uh, come about. And the first one is that of electrification. So in all of the, the scenarios, we see a, a heightened, um, you know, provision of energy supply that is from electricity. Um, the second sort of characteristic from all of the scenarios is that renewables share um, grows in all three of them. Um, and just for, for listeners, uh, for background, there are three, the three scenarios. One is called a, a business as usual scenario. The other is called a rapid scenario where we are uh, getting to a, a well below two degree pathway. And the final uh, scenario is a, a net zero scenario where we get to net emissions of, of zero or close to zero by 2050. So, these these three scenarios that we define, as I mentioned, three main trends. Number one, as I said, electrification. Number two, renewables uh, share is, is increasing in all of them. And the final one is that fossil fuels are playing uh, a declining role in all of them. So even in that business as usual uh, share, um, in that scenario, we see the, the fossil fuel share getting down to something like 20% um, uh, versus a, a decline of 65% in that net zero scenario. And in all of the, the scenarios, the overall level of absolute demand for fossil fuels um, is lower in 2050 uh, compared to, to, to today. Um, and the other way that, that we think about these scenarios is to try to understand just how the system might change over the next 20 to 30 years. And I should mention that we've been very clear that all of these scenarios will and could be could be wrong. Um, but I think it's important to to do the exercise to try to understand what the bounds of the system are um, and also to help inform our strategy and, and other market participants and other industry players strategy. 
Um, and so the first thing that I would highlight, you know, number one uh, in terms of the energy system is that, that we think it's going to be more customer oriented. Um, there's a great chart in our in our report that just shows how there's going to be a much greater diversity of fuels, especially in the 2020 to 2035 time frame than what we've ever seen in the past. Um, and that's going to be um, more uh, preferential for customers uh, rather than upstream producers that are dominating um, by producing either coal in the early part of the, the 20th century and then oil. Um, and so in, in the future with more uh, types of, of energy that are, are meeting demand, um, customers have, have more power in that world and there's greater competition in that world than, than what we've seen in the past. So in that sense, it is a, a brave new, new normal. Um, and, and I think it's, it's an exciting time for companies like ours and it's, it's a challenging time for forecasters. That's, that's a great overview, Michael. Um, and, you know, those three components, electrification, renewables, and fossil fuel combinations, obviously are all contributing to quite a wide range of these potential outcomes. But when we kind of look at outlooks over the past years that BP has offered up, you know, they used to show oftentimes, you know, demand growth slowing or slowly rising, at least in one of the cases. Um, in, in this year's set of scenarios, it, it seems that, you know, there's there's no longer any growth in any one of the given scenarios. Is that is that uh, I guess predicated mostly on customer preference, as you were alluding to, as opposed to just a supply-driven marketplace, or are there some other characteristics that stand out uh, as to the shift you might say between all scenarios now showing peak demand pretty much being behind us? So I think it's important to understand that, you know, we, we're living through a pretty uh, monumental shift in, in our, our lives and, and the way and our economy um, and from a, a whole host of different perspectives. This is a, a major shock to, to, to the system. Um, and so I think it's important to understand that you know, this outlook is one of the first outlooks to have been released in the aftermath of, of the pandemic, um, by any, you know, forecaster. Um, and so comparisons, you know, you really need to be doing apples to apples to look at, um, things that were released by other forecasting agencies or even other, uh, other companies, because it's really, uh, chartering new territory, what, what we're living through. First off, when we think about the effects on, of coronavirus, um, there's a broad impact to the economy that we've had to take into account, um, a, a reduction in, in GDP growth that is not just something that we believe is temporary, but something that, that lasts long term. Um, and, and let's be realistic and understand that the losses, uh, the job losses, the bankruptcies that we're seeing um, the change in behaviors from work from working from home, um, reduction in, in travel and the concern about getting back onto to airplanes and going to conferences and all of these things. While we some of these things are going to bounce back, um, it, it is important to understand that countries, especially 
um, in the Middle East and in developing countries are going to see a permanent impact uh, from from this in terms of lower remitt lower remittances, uh, contraction in tourism revenues, uh, contraction obviously in, in oil revenues, and this will have a, a domino effect on on those economies and on trade and on on the global on the economy as a whole. So the GDP impact is is important, and we can talk more about about that later on. I think it's also important to understand just in terms of the the expectation around peaking um, that we are we are dealing with more stringent efficiency measures than we've seen in the past, especially in Europe. Um, and then we've also taken undertaken a, a review of some of our modeling for China and also for the truck sector. And in both of those cases, um, it's resulted in a lower demand profile than, than what we've published in the past. Excellent. Okay. That certainly puts it in context and it kind of leads to the question I was going to ask about has the pandemic had an impact on or influence over this long-term outlook, which I think you pretty much addressed. Um, it essentially has. But is, in your opinion, uh, and based on all the modeling, are these, you know, course changes irreversible for demand? Are there potentials for surprise to the upside? Or are all the components that are contributing to the rate of slowing demand growth uh, pretty much irreversible in that sense. Okay, so um, by and large, no. The the in our in our view, the profile for energy demand um, doesn't really rebound, with the exception of the BAU scenario. And um, I think you know the broader GDP effect is something like two and a half percent by. By 2025, rising up to about three and a half percent by by 2050, um, and energy demand is falling by about that same percentage. Um, and obviously, the the biggest uh, and most pronounced impact is is on oil demand, which sees oil demand, you know, coming down about three million barrels a day by 2025, and about two million barrels a day by by 2050. And I do think that there is still some areas of the world especially in, in emerging economies where uh, you are still going to see an increase in oil demand growth, mostly, um, you know, in China, India and other developing Asian markets. Um, so by by 2035, compared to where we are today, um, they're almost 10 million barrels a day higher to, to consuming 10 million barrels a day more uh, oil than than in BAU. Um, you know, than than today, and so, you know, the 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 developed economies, though it's even in that best case scenario, they're still declining by about one percent per year. Um, but I think it's important to understand that, of course, there are upside risks to oil demand in in the near term, um, and much of the outlook revolves around assumptions around efficiency uh, savings. Um, especially in the shorter term. And obviously, if we get a situation where people can no longer, um, or well, I shouldn't say people, but more like governments are, are no longer as willing to spur forward um, a policy to, you know, ensure that people are buying more efficient cars, that's going to set back the process. Um, so yeah. obviously, 
charging infrastructure is another another barrier consumer acceptance um you know pet chem recycling these are all risks to the to the upside if those assumptions are not borne out so i guess um on the regionalization if you will of demand support you mentioned that you know obviously some areas will continue to grow and perhaps be offset by uh, the more mature markets do any stand out um in particular in that regard are we going to see disparities in terms of who's carrying the costs burden for the broader transition and the efficiency gains that are being sought? So, yeah, I mean, I think at the outset, the the way that the vehicle stock is set up, um, you know, with more of the vehicle stock globally centered in, in developed economies, um, you know, the, the sort of rate of scrappage and the the slices of new vehicles you're going to have different layers of of net effects in developed versus developing economies um but i think the important thing to to focus on in this regard in terms of you know who's bearing the cost or or how does how do we see this evolving um is that you know the the carbon price is the primary way in which we are we are modeling the effect of decarbonization um, across all different um, energy sectors and in in that BAU scenario uh, the level of carbon prices is pretty low but in in the rapid and net zero scenarios the the carbon price um, increases pretty rapidly uh, and then converges towards the end of the outlook. But you're going to have to have some uh, sort of border adjustment um, type of, of policy that needs to be in place uh, to sort of avoid that carbon leakage such that, um, you know, developed economies should not be paying uh, the most, um, you know, and there'll, there'll need to be some other policies on a global scale to try to 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 harmonize the decarbonization process that's going forward and and in, enhance the likelihood of acceptance of of those higher prices. Obviously, developed economies will be able to bear a higher price, and that's why um, the the profiles look different in developed economies versus developing economies for, for that carbon that's price. An interesting point, I guess, from the standpoint of uh, developing economies can afford it, but should they? necessarily have to afford it. But if we back up a bit, um, if carbon price is kind of the key modeling effect of how the world decarbonizes and it's a consumer driven set of scenarios, does that mean the consumer is agreeing on a carbon price or is it really regulatorily policy driven carbon managed metrics that set the carbon values and perhaps for that matter, even uh, disparities or lumpiness between different regions' acceptance of a carbon price. Yeah. So, in terms of how how the the carbon price is actually um, you know borne out in in reality, um, you know there there are cases where this is implicit, and there are cases where it's explicit. But overall, we're assuming that the carbon price um, is a way in which that um, externality of emissions is priced across the the different energy sectors, um, and in some cases, carbon prices I would say arguably in, in most cases 
carbon prices alone are not the solution to to removing carbon and to reducing the carbon intensity of of these economies we have to see other policies in place in order to to get that uh to occur not sure if that's answering your question Stephen, or or if it's something similar yeah i think i think it does actually the um you know, the fact is that carbon price and how it finds an equilibrium in a market will be how the market views the the demand and impact and the value of the energy for which it creates the carbon, right? Sure. Um, and, so I, and I think we, we have to acknowledge that the in some cases, second best alternatives to carbon prices um you know, there's obviously a lot of political resistance to to carbon pricing. We we understand and acknowledge that, and and um, it's important to to take that into account when we think about what is likely to happen in reality, and and also what um, how companies like ours are are positioning and advocating for um, a better um, a better emissions profile and a and a less carbon intensive world. Yeah, and this is a good point. I, I think everyone accepts the fact that, um, you know, the the world desires to decarbonize to a large extent and therefore has to have the motive to do so. Um, and carbon value needs to be somewhat equitable so that the world can achieve that, uh, that direct mechanism. But the question, I guess, ultimately for those directly involved in the industry is, is peak demand and the decarbonization mean kind of the end of the petroleum markets as we know it? Or what, how would you put in, in the range of scenarios, the level of importance for uh, conventional oil markets as we know them today? Yeah, so I mean, look, I would say a couple of things. First of all, markets are always evolving. Argus, I'm sure, is very very aware in terms of the the number of different prices that you that you're having to track you so it it shouldn't be a surprise at all that the the things that people are paying attention to change over time and i think the same will be will be the case with energy markets so with that with that in mind i don't think it we're saying at all that oil is going to become uh less important we're also saying that these are scenarios and in these scenarios it seems to be the case that oil and fossil fuels play a less dominant role in the future than than it may be playing right now um and i think the third point i would make is that there's some slides in our our presentation that just talk about the decline rates of existing supply and the profile of those decline rates of existing supply um, is still quicker in two of the three scenarios than the decline in demand, which means that in, especially in the nearer term, out to the 2035 timeframe, there's still uh, hundreds of billions of dollars of investment that are needed um, in order to just maintain um, and fill that gap between supply and demand. Now, when you get into a net zero scenario, um, you, you start to see those lines cross towards the end of the outlook. And that implies that there will be some um, questions around the economic viability of future investments, if that is the scenario that, that we find ourselves in. So is that, in essence, suggest that oil is not the new tobacco? In other words, it's not just uh, all bad and 
poor investor sentiment, we truly do need to continue to replace the resource, even with peak demand looming, uh, to continue to to provide the energy the market requires for the foreseeable future. Is that pretty much the case, or? Well, I think going forward, there there are going to be different things that the world will demand of all producers and and governments. And I would say that you know over time there are things like the carbon intensity of fuels that will matter, um, you know more so than than maybe right now. And I think that the attention on um, you know flaring that we've taken a very active role. Um, ensuring that we reduce our, our methane emissions, other, other companies and, and other producers will, will have to do the same. And I think that, um, we're, we make very clear that, that one of our aims is to ensure that, um, the rest of the world can, can reduce, um, emissions and, and can get to a, a net zero path. So I think, um, obviously oil still plays a role. But I think that consumers uh, will begin to demand um, more, uh, a higher level of stewardship around those resources and the way that they're produced um, and consumed and transported. So uh, I guess walking briefly through the whole supply chain, uh, if we start at the upstream, the carbon intensity of oil is pretty heavy, obviously. Uh, Is natural gas a key component in the scenarios for transition uh, towards decarbonization, or are we going to jump straight through to um, other alternatives? So in, in terms of natural gas, we think it, it still plays a really important role in decarbonization, um, especially in a place like India. No matter what scenario, um, the, the share of natural gas in terms of primary energy stays relatively constant across all the scenarios. But the, the locking in of, um, of resources um, and infrastructure is something that that needs to be uh, balanced um, going forward. And so, in a place like Europe or the United States, um, the uh, incremental gains that you can see from uh, natural gas penetrating into the power sector will begin to to decline compared to what we've seen already so far in the power sector in those places. And and over time. And over that same time frame, you know, in the next 10 years, we expect renewables um, to play a, a more uh, prominent role in providing, um, you know, electricity services right. and electricity to to the to the system. So it still has a very important role to play. And there are exporters, obviously, uh, around the world, including including the U.S., including the Middle East, including Russia, that all are going to be providing incremental LNG exports to satisfy uh, that demand. But it's important to understand um, that in certain geographies, natural gas is going to be challenged in those decarbonization scenarios. Yeah, good point. And and we are seeing that, you know, there's in, in the refining space, there's already major projects and plans afoot to, Look at renewable feedstock inputs and and, and garner credits accordingly. But uh, I guess when we look at the transportation fuels mix, could it possibly get so extreme, say between jet fuel versus gasoline, that refiners and other industry operators have to look at significantly different ways of making their investment decisions? Already we're seeing that with refiners idling capacity and 
and uh, converting to renewable feedstock inputs instead of, of conventional petroleum feeds. How extreme might that get? All right. So, you know, in terms of the refining sector, we see roughly 50 million barrels a day of refining capacity rationalization in some of these scenarios where demand grow, where demand falls uh, pretty rapidly. Um, and I think it's important to understand that um, that process is obviously going to result in in a um, in, in a reconfiguration and certain certain refineries are going to have to retool to um, at certain levels of pace in, in faster and some slower um, depending on their geographic location and the exposure that they have to export markets or to declining internal markets um, and in some cases what I would say is that um, the the benefit of the fact that we're going to see a rise in petrochemical demand um, could mean that you see uh, that naphtha that was going into the gasoline pool being redirected into providing for petrochemical feedstock. Um, if we do see scenarios where jet fuel demand, um, especially in the near term, um, does not uh, rebound or does not rebound to the same extent, or you know, by the time we get into the later parts of the outlook, starts to decline, um, then some of that can be redirected into, into diesel or into the marine, um, marine fuel, um, you know, for, for marine fuels. So I think there's a lot of flexibility, but obviously the, there are certain refineries that are going to see a lot of pressure from that. Refiners are looking at having to either reconfigure or retool in order to compete for market share of a dwindling market. Uh, right. Perhaps see a redeployment of assets in different ways, as you say, uh, versus just ultimately shutting down. But if we're already into the front end of all three scenarios where, in essence, peak demand is already upon us for all intents and purposes, are we already in this window of, of dire competition in the downstream refining space? Or will it be a while before people realize that it's happening and it will accelerate in the mid to later periods. Um, I think that we're we're very much in that space right now. We're seeing that, and obviously the you know the goal of the outlook is not to comment on some of these near term dynamics, but to try to you know highlight major trends that we're going to see in the industry. But I, I it's obviously not something that should surprise you or any of the listeners to see that. You know, we're we're seeing an environment right now of very weak uh, refining margins and and a lot of um, rationalization and and further flung trade um, and uh, unusual sort of dynamics that that we've not seen before because of this massive uh, uh, decline in in jet fuel demand that um, looks to be quite uh, quite lasting at least you know as long as the pandemic lasts. So in essence, I guess COVID may be masking some of the front end of this longer term trend um, for people to assume it's COVID related versus the underpinning of the long term fundamental structure and shift in the marketplace. Huh? Right. Right. OK. Yeah. Well, I guess one one or two last thoughts here to uh, explore with you. Um, how important is the 
you know, the shiny new objects of electric vehicles and the technology rapid pace of change and the efficiency gains, how important is the electrification of the vehicle fleet in your business as usual case? So in the business as usual case, as I, as I mentioned before, you know, the, the efficiency issues are far more important in the beginning of the outlook, especially the 2030. Um, but electrification becomes a much bigger issue in the second half. And so in, in the BAU scenario, we see, um, you know, the, the elect, the electric vehicles get to, I would say about half of sales by the time we get to 2050 and about 35% of the overall park. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's a really important thing to understand that, um, you know, there, there are far different scenarios in, in a rapid scenario or in that zero scenario where battery costs and, and consumer acceptance sees a, a higher penetration of those vehicles. Um, and then, then you start to see much more of a, of a fuel offset from, from the electrification of vehicles. But obviously there's, there's a lot of, uh, different nuances there in terms of the ability of, um, consumers to, to accept, um, you know, the, the, the different type of vehicle. Um, and I think that some of that will come from improving, uh, the range of, of those vehicles, the different types of vehicles that are offered. Um, and so that, that's something that is not going to happen overnight. And that's why, you know, we have these long-term outlooks is to, to look at how fast that might occur. And you're right. You know, in that BAU scenario, in the shorter term, you know, by 2035, it's the the electric vehicles are only on a global basis, only about 25 percent of the sales and less than 15 percent of the park by 2035. And that's, you know, 15 years away from now. And look at all of the the improvements that, that we've been that have been made so far in terms of, of the battery cost coming down. Gotcha. Well, you know, the advancements in technology continue to seem to accelerate. Ten to 15 years sound like a lifetime to some people, but as um, as it appears to be a consumer acceptance issue and the fact that people are attracted to new tech and efficiency gains and are, how should we say, uh, putting their money where their, <laughs> where their environmental uh, conscience sits. Perhaps uh, we'll see that happen sooner than later. Listen, Michael, it's been a pleasure exploring these scenarios with you. I'd like to encourage our listeners of the podcast to explore these scenarios. They're posted on the BP website. Um, they are very thought-provoking. They are issues that uh, I think you'll find worthwhile to explore. Uh, again, I want to thank Michael for joining me today on our Driving Discussions podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to tune in for other episodes in our series. Uh, we have further information about the Global Refined Products Marketplace and our service offerings. If you want to visit ArgusMedia.com, you'll find all the information there. So, again, thank you, Michael. And, thank you, um, Stephen. I, I look forward to our next visit and wish you well. And thank you so much. You bet. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.